Good afternoon and welcome to Talk of the Towns. We try to go beyond the headlines to make the sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is aired on WERU Community Radio since 1993, dedicated to the proposition that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, or experience our concerns and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I'm your host, Ron Beard, hoping you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Well, this afternoon, we're taking a trip across the Atlantic to the west coast of Scotland. If we were to follow the roots of the Vikings on their way back from Maine to their home territories, we'd head north to Nova Scotia, most of the way up Labrador, before heading east along the 58th parallel, passing a little bit below Greenland and our journey east following the Gulf Stream. Approaching land on the other side, we'd first come to the Hebrides. Our guest this morning is Leone Charlton, a friend and writer from the west coast of Scotland. In her new book, Marum, Memories of Sea and Spider Silk, she takes us on a journey up the string of Hebridean islands in the spring of the year. Leonie, welcome to Talk of the Towns. Thank you, Ron. It's very lovely to be here. So what I'd like you to do first is just to read a, a passage. Um, I think it's the preface to your book, and that will really set the stage for our, our listeners this morning. Would you do that? With pleasure. I'm sitting in my writing box in Glenlonan, Argyll. It's early September and three months since I got back from riding through the Outer Hebrides with my friend Shuna and our two Highland ponies, Ross and Chief. I can see Ross now, grazing on grass that's lost its summer sheen. The forested hillside rises up behind him. A single rowan in full bright berries stands out amongst the birch and oak. Beyond the soft shrug of these trees, half hidden in cloud, is Ben Kruchen. The writing box is the back of a refrigerated van my father converted. He took out the steel meat hooks, put in windows and a door. Despite his attention to detail, it relies on a dehumidifier to stay dry. Today is my first time in here for a while, and I'm aware of its particular smell, a combination of damp emulsion and plywood, metal and mold. I push open the window, and breathe in the cuspy autumn air. Bracken has grown up past the windowsill. Coppery tones seep upwards from the ground and colour the underfronds. There are thistles too, purple flowers long gone, but the heads are still holding on to tufts of down. Silver turned to peaks of grey after weeks of rain. A single foxglove folds over, its leaves riddled with rust-edged holes. Empty flower cups, darkening to a lone brown. On the inside of the windowsill is a stem of marum grass I found in my saddlebags after the trip. It's sharp and lucent. It reminds me of how I'd felt coming home, bright and still after all those slow spent hours in the marum and cotton grass. My mother passed to me a passion for horses which has been a lifeline, a source of love and grounding throughout my life. My relationship with her was fraught with pain and misunderstanding. At times I'd wondered if life would be better without her. Then she died and I was broken. 
almost seven years after her death, long enough for nearly every cell in my body to have renewed itself. It felt like the grief and regret were intensifying. I was bone weary of the guilt. A redundant emotion, Mum herself had always said. Had always said. She'd been a jeweller and a passionate collector of beads. During the months of planning for the Hebrides trips, for the Hebrides trip, an idea had formed to leave a trail of beads for Mum. Where better than through this archipelago that she'd loved, itself a necklace of granite and sand, schist and nice, strung on streams of salt and fresh water. I've loved the Hebrides for decades, ever since travelling to some of the islands on work trips with my father, who was a vet in Oban. One summer, Dad took my younger brother and me on a camping trip through the Outer Hebrides. Memories of that fortnight remain amongst the most luminous of my life. I associated the islands with him and everything he embodied, which was the opposite of the emotional, cultural and physical chaos of life with Mum. Dad represented safety and stability. He smelt of veterinary and disinfectant. He knew the names of all the seabirds and of all the sailing boats. Mum had also travelled widely in the Hebrides, but I'd never been out there with her. And now, in this unexpected way, was my chance. The islands and strands we crossed, the people and wildlife we met, the days of travel alongside the ponies, the memories that surfaced as I laid down beads, would all rest changes in my inner landscape. At the head of Loch Resort, where Harris meets Lewis, I would nearly lose my pony. I would be stripped back by fear in that place and find my own bedrock that had been hidden under layers of life silt. The journey would prove to be a pilgrimage of love and personal sea change. Marum is the story of how I found new relationships with my mother and with myself. It's also a love story of place not just of how environment renews and nourishes us human beings, but also of how our wakefulness, our attentiveness, may give something back in return. We leave behind footprints steeped in appreciation and perhaps the best gift of all to the sand and peat, two sets of smooth hoof prints. Today seems a fitting day to start writing about this journey. The apples are half turned to red on the trees outside. A young buzzard is mewing. He's been doing it for weeks while he flies elliptical circles. Each day the calls are getting stronger and higher. He's on his own now. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. So well crafted, as your whole book is. And I just really um, have enjoyed reading it. Um, Leone, tell us a little bit about your home place and, and how I know, this is the place where you are writing from. Um, how did you arrive there? Um, what's it like mm. now? Okay, so I live in Glenlonan in Argyll, and um, I've got a lot, lot of strong connection there. I didn't grow up with my father, and we used to um, come and visit him in Oban when we were kids, and he would take us cycling in Glenlonan. And purely by chance, I met my husband, who was living in Glenlonan and who had roots in Glenlonan. So I've ended up living in this place. Um, and it's, it, it's, oh, it's beautiful. I love it. Great. And um, you said your, your, um, both your parents kind of helped you de develop connections to animals and horses in particular. Mm -hmm. um, and do you have horses there? 
Okay, well, I'm very fortunate. We're tenant farmers, so we rent our hill farm. And I have a little herd of six, um, six horses. And I keep thinking, my practical brain thinks, gosh, I must, I must, minute, you know, I must reduce the numbers. Um, but uh, as you all know yourself, having horses, they've got very strong relationships and um, they've all pair bonded. So I'm, I'm a, I've reconciled, reconciled myself to, I, I'm, I'm committed to them for, for life. Well, yeah. let's talk about the, the journey um, in the Hebrides, up the, the, the spine of, of the, the Outer Hebrides. Um, you had some companions, including mm. one of your horses. Talk about who, who came along with you. Okay, so my, my pony is called Ross. He's a rum highland. Uh, he's a spectacular character. I, I hope I've done him justice in the book. And his pal was Chief, a, 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 gray, a gray highland from the Isle of Mull and my very good friend Shuna. So Shuna and Chief and Ross and I were the four. And we've, we've done quite a few trips together before. So um, one particularly spectacular trip through the Noidart Peninsula. So we'd come against a few um, obstacles and we, yeah, we knew we were a good team. We had a good grounding. So your your journey, um, maybe you could just describe a little bit of it, but it was it was interesting to me to read about how you would kind of um, leapfrog your way up the islands because you had um, a truck and a horse box, and that's how you got um, you know across the water between islands. Um, talk us, tell us a little bit about the journey itself. Absolutely. So you know, the romantic part in me would have loved to have have left open with a pack and the ponies and, and not had any reliance on a vehicle. You know, 50 years ago, that would have been possible. You could just lead a horse onto a ferry. But of course, now you're not allowed to do that. So it was, it was really interesting. Initially, I had resistance because it was almost like, oh, we'd be brought back to daily reality by this vehicle. But actually, like, well, actually, it was, it was liberating. Um, because we were very reliant, we, we were able to be more self-reliant, uh, and it, yeah, it gave us, it added a dimension to the journey that I would, I would do again. Um, yeah, I, I really liked it, the freedom it gave us. It gave you freedom, but it also um, kind of required you, uh, rather than just rough camping, to kind of connect with people so that you could have a place um, for, to park um, the, the, the car and in some time to find shelter. Absolutely. And so what, what we tried to plan a few days ride and then we'd get a lift or hit, yeah, hitchhike or get a lift or public transport back to the vehicle and then drive on to the next destination so you're absolutely right that connection with people was beautiful and the chats we had in cars and um in fact we did we only had to hitchhike once because people were so generous and they offered lifts uh, so yeah that added a added a wonderful dimension Give us, if you could, give us some um, background on, on the islands themselves. Uh, you started out, I believe, on the island of Barra. Um, how did yeah. you reach Barra, for instance? Okay, so Barra, it's about, I think it's probably about 40 miles from, from Oban. It's a four-hour boat trip and um, across the Sea of Hebrides. 
And then we, so we went in the ferry, the horses in the trailer underneath us. The, the weather was unbelievable. We met huge shoals of dolphins and it was, it was a beautiful start to the trip. And then we traveled up through the Hebrides. It's a, it's a chain of islands about 120 miles long, consisting of, I think, over 100 islands, not all of which are inhabited, of course. Um, and some of them are connected by causeways, so we could ride over them, and some are connected by, um, by ferries. So we, we bought what you call a hop, hopscotch ferry ticket, and yeah, we had great time, great time on the ferries. So um, what I recall, because um, I've traveled there uh, several times, um, is a particular quality of light and mm. the constant pressure, uh, uh, presence of water, whether it was ocean or fresh water. So talk a little bit more about what you encountered um, on your journey um, by horseback and, and so on. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the light. It is very unique out there. Um, there's a clarity to it and the colors, I don't know what it does, but it does something. It does something to color. I'd also say, I think being out there in May added to that because May is such an extraordinary month. So you've, the temperatures are low enough. You haven't got a haze that comes later in the year. So you can see a long, long, long way. Um, but it's starting to warm up. But yeah, you've got this clarity and and we were lucky, we had quite a lot of sun. And the water, there's something about the liminal, yeah, being in that liminal space between land and sea and land and lochs. There's, as you say, there is water everywhere. And it's, yeah, traveling slowly with the ponies was the best possible way I can imagine to experience that. I'm I'm really into going slowly. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, people sort of despair sometimes at the short distances we do, but for me, that's what it's all about—going slowly and really appreciating. So yeah. I can imagine um, that on horseback, um, and in particular, kind of um, uh, connection to your horse. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a way of which you allow the horse to take you so that you're fully aware of, of the surroundings that you're in, different than a car, different than even walking, where you have to walk, watch where your feet are going. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we, we, Shuna and I are quite often quiet when we're traveling. And, you know, after days of being with your horse, I mean, it's not a conscious thing, but I think you, you start to see things how they might see things. And certainly your senses get really honed, really sharp to scent and sight and sound. Um, and not, an important thing to say is that we're quite often not riding. Um, so we do ride and it's lovely to get a rest. And then quite often we hop off and walk along with them. And that's very lovely. You know, on a long journey, you don't need to hold the horse. They'll just walk along beside you or behind you. And it's an extraordinary camaraderie. It's an extraordinary, um, it's a privilege being, really being alongside a horse, mm. particularly in that environment. 
Well, folks, yeah. our listeners, you're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're having a conversation with Leonie Charlton, um, the author of Maram, a new book published by Sandstone Press um, just this year. And Maram tells the story of her journey um, up the chain of islands called the Hebrides in Scotland. Leonie, um, um, perhaps you've got a, a piece, uh, a short piece from the book that helps um, listeners um, see what you saw, experience what you experienced. Got something um, there in mind that you can share with us? Well, I woke up this morning and I thought, oh, flowers. I think I need to talk about flowers today. Um, here in Scotland, suddenly everything's taking off. Um, it feels like the most beautiful April that ever was, but I think every April feels like that. Um, so, um, yeah, let me, let me find a little bit about flowers. Um, 72. Okay, so this, this short section is on South Uist, uh, which was an absolute revelation to me. I had been to many of the islands, but I hadn't explored South Uist at all. And uh, here we are on South Uist. We rode for miles, alternating between the beach and the dunes, the afternoon brightening all the time. The track switched between farm vehicle tracks and narrower paths shared by walkers and sheep, rabbits and cattle. The sun easing into the west balanced the clouds. The hills of Barrow were behind us, and to our right, South Uist opened up in layers. Cultivated macha, then a strip of grass sward with faraway cattle silhouetted against silver lochs, and behind that, the heather hills still brown from winter. The sun roamed across the landscape, spotlighting a single silver swan, a red calf, the gold gilt of marum grass. Our shadows were stretching out long to the east when we moved inland from the shore. We passed a single standing stone, a toggle on the buttercup-felted macca. In front of Loch Torinish, the ground changed underfoot. Oh my God, I breathed. Look at those flowers. They go for miles. I jumped off Ross and squatted down. They're pansies, the tiniest I've ever seen. They were flame yellow, with crimson rays across their petals. Droves of daisies too, their petals closing for the night over yolk yellow centres. Can you hold Ross for a moment, I said, passing the reins up to Shuna. I needed to see the world through flower, flower eyes. A myriad of bright pansy faces watched me as I lay down in their terrain of laughter and light. When I stood up, I stepped into Ross's shadow. It was woven of dusk and daisy stars. His shadow, his soul, I thought, as Shuna handed me, handed me my reins. Back in the saddle, my eyelashes were wet, my heart strung tight. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. And for our listeners here on this side of the Atlantic, um, uh, what's Maka? Ah, Maka. So Maka is um, an environment unique to the west coast of Scotland. I think I'm correct in saying you don't get it anywhere else in the world. And it's sand, it's soils that have been enriched by the light, by the lime in the in the shell shell sand. So the the soil on the on the islands is very peaty and very acidic. And when you get it mixed with this shell sand, it turns into a very uh, fertile environment. 
So you get this explosion of flowers and insects and bird life. So um, as you've m- m- talked about this uh, journey, uh, written about this journey, um, certainly the, the landscape um, gives you something, but um, you've also done a good job of, of talking about history and, and how people make a living um, in, the, in the Outer Hebrides. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Give um, our listeners a, a flavor of, of uh, the kind of human activity there. Mm. Yes, so they have a very vibrant crofting culture. So a croft is a small farm. And um, traditionally, they would they would grow uh, food, oats and potatoes, they'd grow forage for the cattle in the winter. um, And they'd have common a share of common grazing where the livestock graze. It's a very uh, diverse form of farming uh, with a lot of different skills and in lots uh, yeah in in lots of places those skills are being lost but out in the Hebrides you still see every day you see people working their land in that way and it's really heartening mm. really heartening to see yeah and um, there's a, a, a community culture um, one that I remember, I think you and I uh, at different times went to the same museum, um, kind of a, a, and it's really a wonderful way to get to know the community. Mm. Um, yeah. So the, the craft system is a result of, of uh, a kind of a dark time of history um, called the clearances. Um, mm your book um, describes a little bit of that and perhaps our listeners would benefit from kind of knowing um, a little bit of that story. Mm, Yeah. Dark, a dark cloud over Scottish history. I'm by no means an expert, but having ridden through a lot of empty places, glens on the mainland that have been completely emptied, uh, ruined villages, you know, glens that, that where, where, hundreds of people would live and now you ride through them and there is not a soul so people were cleared off the land to make way for more profitable sheep farming generally and there was a mass uh, mass emigration to america and australia and huge hardship a lot of people went against their will there are terrible stories of people being caught and tied 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 onto boats it's 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 heart-rending really heart-rending and you you feel that in places you still feel that legacy and you encountered um the kind of the the bones of that earlier culture and we're talking um you know uh, 1800s um you you would come across um houses um Mm -hmm. stone stone structures that used to to represent a vibrant community and yeah. as you say abandoned yeah yeah and it's yeah i mean it's, it's very interesting because we we appreciate you know we maybe we over romanticize empty so-called wild places but often these places were so inhabited by people and actually they're not wild empty places they are emptied places yes 
Um, and and you yeah, you're very aware of that with all the ruins. So those people who stayed, um, who were able mm. to stay, um, mm. crafting became the way in which um, the landowners of the time said, well, we'll give them a little bit. <laughs> we'll give them yeah, a, a little bit and a little bit of security. Right. It has afforded some security, which is, which is great. So, and, and more recently, um, communities, at least North U.S. and I think in South U.S., have begun to buy back Mm. The lands, and you must have seen some semblance of, of what was happening there, where people had had actually purchased land from whatever landowner exists exists at the time, um, and said, "We're going to make a community enterprise of this." Yeah, so, so it, it's very exciting. That? Yeah, yeah, I'm, you know, nothing's perfect, but it's exciting when you see communities taking control. Uh, you know, having 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 a voice and a vision. I think it's not always uh, <laughs> easy because people are people um, and people fall out and some people are over, over dominant, you could say, and take over. So, so there are still a lot of people who feel they don't have a voice. But I, I, yeah, it's really hard. I think the community, I'm not an expert. I think the community is quite divided though, as mm. to whether it's a good thing or not. It's not, I mean, my, I feel, my, my gut feeling is it's a fantastic thing, but I, I'm, not, I'm not an expert. Sure. And I think some people have struggled because they may have felt that they've gone from one dominate, dominant system to another. Right. And then you also see wonderful examples where the communities are really coming together and, you know, with, with energy, renewable energy and tourism initiatives and, yeah, really supporting each other in the community do you do you recall any particular people that you met um that you weren't expecting to meet perhaps on on your journey oh lots of people yeah I and mean, i i didn't know who we were going to meet and it was it, it was a, an absolute pleasure it wasn't that we met a lot of people but every single person we came across felt like um a, a really precious and profound moment uh, i remember f the first day riding on barra and we were on on the airport beach and it's very famous for its cockling so lots of people still out there cockling in the past they used to use horse horses and then it went on to tractors anyway now it's just people i think i think they've got restrictions and so cockles, again, for our American audience, they might not be familiar, but um, cockles are, are seafood. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so we, they are delicious, absolutely delicious. It's a bivalve uh, yeah, shell and it's, they're, they're yummy. And um, a lot of people on Barra collect cockles. And I think some of them do it as a living and some as a, yeah, just for the, for the pot but we were riding across this beach and there was a woman up ahead cockling away I mean, she, it's hard work and she leant on her rake as we came up and she her face was she it was the most beautiful smile i think i've ever seen lit up her face as she looked at the ponies it it was the ponies they 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 just bring something out in people and we were chatting away and we asked if she knew, you know, if she was a pony person. And she said, 
She said, no, but I, I watched the show jumping on the television. <laughs> and I just think, oh, how terrible that must be for them. How hard that must be. And it was, it was an extraordinary moment because she wasn't a horse person, but she had this enormous well of empathy for what it might be like for these horses she was watching, these, you know, competition horses. Mm. Um, yeah, amazing. So um, being a journey on horseback um, um, gives you access to the landscape, but it also makes you approachable, it seems, um, mm. because people, um, if you were going by car or even bicycle, um, you know, you, you see that all the time, but the horses must have lent you um, kind of a, a, a lent people an invitation to get in touch, to, to encounter you. I think that's right, Ron. Often people may be very wary of other people, but you know, you see it all the time with people walking their dogs. Mm. You need, strangers will go up to them and connect with the dog. It's exactly the same with the horses. Mm. And also in a, in a culture where horses played a massive role historically, there is a lot of deep knowledge and a lot of memory around horses. So everyone can remember their grandparents working with horses and sometimes closer, sometimes their parents. So it stirred up, stirs up a real recognition in people and, in, and a nostalgia possibly. Um, yeah. And you needed to um, actually find um, uh, places to um, keep your horses overnight. So you were yeah. kind of uh, um, some, some you knew in advance places that you had arranged in advance, but other times you had to kind of figure that out on the fly as it were. Yeah. I mean, we, we did rely on people's kindness. Absolutely. Um, and again, that was a lovely way of getting to know people. It's a funny thing. We were actually amazed at how welcoming the farmers particularly were to horses because certainly on the mainland horses have you know since the tractor came in unfortunately horses have i don't want to generalize but in a in a lot of farmers eyes they've rather plummeted you know to, to being just creatures that make a mess mm. or it might be the people that come along with them <laughs> got the bad reputation um so it was we were constantly amazed at, at how how welcoming people were but there was a one particular place valet which is an un uninhabited island off north Uist. exquisite place and the farmer there he has a is a big cattle operation and very tightly run farm and often you know they might be the places where people would be hostile to horses going on and he could not have been more welcoming and it turned out his his daughter was really into horses and so was he and it was lovely those horse connections with people were were very special so the other part um besides the the wildflowers and the and the plant life the trees um you also um pay particular attention to the wildlife, um, the, the birds um, that, that you encountered. And um, in your book, you often capitalize um, their names as, to, as though to call out to a reader, hey, pay attention. This is really important. You need, you need to pay attention to this creature. Um, have you got a reading that, that might illustrate um, that? And as you find it, I'll just remind listeners they're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. And our conversation this morning is with Leonie Charlton, 
the author of Marrow, uh, published by Sandstone Press in 2020. And if you can't find something easily, that's all right. But you, you could just talk about um, the, the, uh, the encounters that you remember with uh, the bird life and, and other mm. wildlife. Yeah, I mean, it, as you say, it's a, it's a huge part of the trip. I'm just having a little look here. Um, I mean, the, the, the birds and the flowers and the animals are throughout the book. Um, let me just have a think. And I'll remind listeners that there are no phone calls being taken at this time. This is a pre-recorded um, interview, a special edition of Talk of the Towns here on WERU. So there's a little section towards the end of the book that I'd like to read that in relation to the farming and the wildlife and the interaction between farming, wildlife and people and land activity, I really loved how everything blends. So, for example, like the farmers welcoming us onto the land, there's this very healthy symbiotic relationship with farm animals, wildlife and the crop and ancient history. Mm. So this is a little section from Callanish, um, a very, very well-known site, Standing Stones, 5,000 years old in, on, on Lewis. And this is towards the end of the book. Um, bear with me a sec. So uh, I, it, throughout the book, I comment on how often ancient sites aren't fenced off. Um, and, you know, they've got sheep grazing around them. And I really, really love that. The sense of the past and the present all being mixed in. Okay. So Kalanish 1 is the main site, and that is fenced off. But we, we visited Kalanish 1, and then we rode bareback along to Kalanish 2 and 3. Kalanish 2 and 3 were altogether wilder places. There was no mowed grass here, and I felt at home with the mellow smell of cow dung. Even this late in the evening, skylarks were singing. Every once in a while, a vehicle would judder across the cattle grid on the main road. Snipe drummed against the last of the day. I sat down with my back against a sloping stone. Here, most of the stones stood at rakish angles. The cattle and sheep had made hollows in the ground where they sheltered and rubbed against them. On some stones, sorry, on some stones, tufts of cattle hair clung to the lichen. On others, the marbled rock had been polished smooth. The cattle must love it here, I said. Later, over a cup of tea and a plate of delicious drop scones, Sheena, who was the common grazings clerk, told us that historic Scotland had sent her a letter inviting her to come and look at the damage the beasts were doing. What did you say to them? I asked. Oh, I let the letter lie, she answered, her eyes shining. I think we deserve a toast, said Shuna, walking over from the stone she'd been leaning against and passing me the hip flask. To these stones, to us, to Skylarks, to Chief and Ross, she said. I took a long sip of open 14-year-old, light on the peak, notes of cut hay, tarry ropes in the sea. Here's to mum who loved the smell of hot tar, to mum who loved so much. We walked the ponies slowly back towards Callanish One. We couldn't resist a last donder amongst, amongst the stones. 
I put my hand on rock that had been crushed and melted and folded for, o for over 3,000 million years. Rock that was embedded with crystals of feldspar, white quartz, hornblende. Rock that had been shaped and raised by a people 5,000 years ago. To the east of us, a soft cottony moon, one day off full, was surfacing in the sky. Why don't we come back at sunrise, said Shuna. Yes, I said. Perfect, I'd leave beads here for mum as the sun rose. I'd leave the last of the beads. I tilted my face up and in the sweep of sky overhead found two Swarovski sharp stars. Even the way I saw the stars was informed by mum, watching her working with all those crystals, seeing her thread them, turning them bead by bead into works of art. My appreciation of being here now, of this place, of this everything, was intensified because she'd embedded in me a love of antiquity, of discovery, of Scotland, of horses. Mm. Uh, so that takes me to mum. <laughs> yes, it does. And just remind listeners, they've, they've just heard a wonderful piece um, from the towards the end of the book Marum uh, by our guest and author, Leonie Charlton. So we've talked a lot about the outward journey, what you saw, what you experienced, but there was this inward journey, and you've just made reference to that. Um, uh, much of this journey was um, allowing you to perhaps understand your your mother and uh, come to terms in some way. Talk, talk, talk a little bit about, about that. Mm. Yeah, so, so mom had died seven years before, before the trip. And it, like I say in the preface, it just felt like things were getting worse and worse. And it didn't matter, you know, all the thinking and feeling and trying to let go, nothing was really working. I was just so gutted by it really and and the difficult relationship we had and I was yeah it was torturous um my friend a very good friend of mine a Spanish my Spanish friend Gloria she is a is um a real fan of Alejandro Jodorowsky who is a Chilean surrealist filmmaker and He's a self-professed, what does he call it? Psycho-magician. I don't know much about him. <laughs> but the one thing I have taken from him is he is really into ritual. So he's interested in, rather than thinking, he's interested in, in doing acts that heal. And uh, yeah, and I, Gloria told me after her mother's death, she'd done some sort of act. I'm not sure what it was, but she said it had helped hugely. And that's where the laying of the beads idea came from. And I was just looking for a way of, of changing something because I was stuck on this horrible loop of guilt. It wasn't, I really believe that even when someone's dead, we, we continue to be in relationship with them. And I didn't want to have this relationship forever. I wanted it to be different. And yeah, it just felt like by performing these little acts of love every day, something could change and it and it did. Mm. It did. Mm. Well, it's it's a wonderful tribute um to the struggle of finding um that kind of peace. Um mm. and the the places that you 
um, left beads that you placed beads um, are a magical part of, mm-hmm. of the journey. And uh, um, so uh, I, I really invite readers to, to, to buy the book to, to get some of those um, secret places that um, just are just wonderful, wonderful representation. Um, what else did you discover about your, your mom um, on this journey? Uh, besides kind of coming, what sounds like coming to peace um, with that relationship, what did you discover about her? Mm. Well, I think, you know, I, I was in a much softer place around her and I could really, for the first time, really feel our similarities and our shared passions, which had always, because we had a difficult re- relationship, I'd, I'd resisted that to a large extent. And I, during that trip, I just sur- I surrendered to it. It's like, mm. oh my goodness, so much of what gives life meaning to me, all the, the really precious things, I've inherited a lot of that from mum. So I, I was, so it was almost like a very gentle displacement of the guilt to gratitude. Mm. In a, a very unforced way, but that I think is what happened. Mm. That's, that's a great um, kind of a lesson for all of us, um, I think, to um, how to come to terms with things that are difficult in our lives that we don't quite understand. Um, there's in the journey that you describe in Marum, there was a letting go of, mm. of those tensions, and um, when, once you let go of that, something else comes in. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a that's a lovely way to look at it. It's like the tide goes out, and there's this <laughs> moment of potential, and what's going to come in. Yeah, yeah. But you have to let the tide. You have to let the tide go out before the tide can come in. Right, right. And probably you, as 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 many of us, have sat at that particular precise moment when there isn't motion. Um, in the tide. The tide is completely out. It hasn't started to come in yet or vice versa. The tide is in. It hasn't started to go out. But there's a particular place and feeling um, on the earth and in, us, in ourselves when, that, mm. when we reach that place. Uh, talk a little bit about your writing process. Um, mm. when, when did you become a writer? When did you know that you wanted to, to express um, yourself in, in, in the written word, both poetry, um, essays, and, and now this book? Well, I, th- I think like a lot of people who write, it, it did start way back. As a child, I love writing. I love creative writing. And then in high school, I think I got a little bit knocked down. I would be very sensitive to comments. I, I still am. <laughs> Work in progress. Um, but I can remember a distinct moment at high school when I'd written an essay about forestry. I was really anxious about the, the, the blanket Sitka spruce in Scotland. And it was a tax it was a tax evasion at that time and it was really distressing to see hills dug up and planted. And I wrote this I guess it was probably quite an emotional teenage piece about trees and it was there was just one comment, too emotional or something. And I you know, I don't think I did creative writing for a really, really long time. I did I studied Spanish at university, so there was quite a lot of literary criticism and that sort of thing. Um I think the most the closest I came to creative writing was love letters. So, you know, in the days when you would write to your 
partner endless letters so that's a great way of practicing writing and then when I was in my early 40s there I had a a, a moment um I was on the island of Tyree and someone had lent me Kathleen Jamie's book Sightlines and I was reading these essays and I think they're what they, they, they're what you call new nature writing so it's nature writing but with a really strong human element or yeah and I was blown away I was absolutely blown away like, what is this and I, I wrote to her because she she was a tutor at Stirling University and I mean I it was very naive of me but um I had oh the other part of it was I'd had a whiskey tasting night recently and having been I've loved whiskey forever but I don't know much about it. And I had this whiskey tasting evening and this world opened up and I thought, wow, maybe it could be like that with writing. They say you can't learn writing, but maybe you can have your eyes open to craft. So anyway, I, I ended up getting in touch with the University of Stirling. Kathleen Jamie herself was away somewhere and um, her colleague answered me. And then I went and did the MLit, the master's. In creative writing and that's when things really started mm. that's when I was able to give it a, give it serious time and serious space so yeah. was that mostly um, uh, essays or poetry how did you how did you enter that space um, I entered it because I'd been sitting with a novel for years oh. so I you know I had been writing but never getting anywhere lots of notebooks but not showing anything, not submitting anything, and not really getting anywhere other than saying, I really want to write a lot, but not actually doing it. So I went in, I, I, got, I got accepted onto that course through fiction, but then it was, um, you know, once I was there, it was just this incredible eye-opener to all sorts of other, to poetry, actually. Um, I had never written poetry before, and that's turned out to be a huge love of mine uh, and yeah memoir and creative non-fiction so we did a bit of everything and it was it was great absolutely brilliant so Kathleen Jamie um, brought us together even though she wasn't yes. present <laughs> even though she yes. wasn't present the nature um, writing we, course at Moniac. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so had you done all those kinds of things? This is a, a writing center, a creative writing center in uh, in Scotland, uh, well well known and well respected. Um, had you done other of those kinds of events? Well, uh, not so. The first serious thing I did was doing the masters, and then after that, I yes, I'd done a travel writing course at Moniac, which was a five day course. I learned so much. And then the nature writing course with you, which was an, a magical week. And I've since done a poetry week. Um, yeah, I haven't spoken much about poetry, but it really informs. It, when I was writing Marum, it was, it was what I was reading. Mm. And actually, originally, every chapter started with a poem, a contemporary Scottish poem, which we took out for all sorts of reasons. I think it was the right decision, but it was the scaffolding that enabled me to to find my voice in it. Mm -hmm. But yes, you can learn so much from other writers. You can. Sure. It's, it's incredible. 
So the third journey that I refer to anyway is the, the creation of Marum, um, finding a publisher, just a, a little bit about that. And then I'll have you read, to, we're almost at the end of an hour, um, have you read um, um, uh, the last piece from, from Marum. Mm. But what was the journey like to get published? Okay, well, I, I was thinking about that recently. Someone asked me and I, and I was I was only, my answer I realized afterwards was only positive. Like, oh, it's just great, great, great. But actually, honestly, it's a bit like labor. So I've had three children <laughs> and you really do forget very quickly. When you have this incredible baby, you really do forget. And I, and I think it's a bit like that. I was very fortunate. Sandstone Press, who are wonderful, signed me really quickly. But it wasn't instant. And there was a process of trying to get an agent and approaching a couple of other people. And gosh, it's, it's a strange time. And I, the publicist I work with, she said to me once um, at Sandstone, she said, it's a very difficult thing because in order to write, you need to have the most sensitive skin. And then once you're published, you have to suddenly develop an alligator skin. Mm. And we're not... We, you know, we, we haven't, we haven't got the tools. We're writers, our hearts are on our sleeves. We, you know, it's, so that's been, yeah. So sending, sending stuff out and maybe getting silence. Silence for me is the worst. I have to say, I'd rather get a little line that says not for us, but thanks so much. Silence is a killer. <laughs> so I have vowed to myself not to do silence to people. <laughs> Well, let's move on. Uh, let's go to that last section of your book um, so that um, our listeners can uh, kind of get a glimpse of, of how you concluded. Again, this is Leonie Charlton, um, the author of Marum, published by Sandstone Press in 2020. Did you find that piece? Yes. So this is the very, this is the very end. Yes. Oh, no, sorry. Yeah. Sunrise at Kalanish. So this is day 22. The alarm went off at 3.30 a.m. I was instantly awake. We'd less than an hour to pack the tent, load Chief and Ross, and drive along to Kalanish 1 before sunrise at 4.24 a.m. There was a strong tangerine glow on the horizon, and my heart raced with a childlike excitement. We made it just in time and were standing by the stone-drawn cruciform as the sun rose. I spun round slowly, taking it all in our shadows going on forever, the stones turning an earthy pink. The sky folded into mauves and azures, a breath of cloud turned scarlet in a single second. Then the whole of the sun was visible between the stones, their shadows reaching across the turf. I walked down the longest shadow to a large flat rock, knelt and emptied the bead purse. There were four left, an unpolished lapis bead, a handmade glass bead, cobalt blue and tubular, a branch of red coral, an off-round seed pearl. It was perfect to leave the last of beads here at Kalanish as the sun climbed. I stood up and walked away from the beads towards a solitary standing stone. Behind it were the silver reaches of Loch Kenhulavig. In the far distance, I could see those hills we had been in only two days before. The whole of my shadow fitted on the stone. The rock was ridged like an oyster shell. The striations ran through me. 
That was me, Beedie, me, Leonie. Mum had named me after a French writer, Leonie, she'd say with her perfect French accent. I'd always shied away from my name. It was somehow too big, too brave, too lion-like for me. Maybe now it was time to step into it. My name given to me by a beautiful young woman some 45 years ago who believed in fairies, in her children, and that the world was their oyster. Look, a short-eared owl, I said. We were driving slowly across the moorland towards Stornoway, in good time to catch the 7am ferry to Ullapool. The bird glided for long, soft seconds before disappearing over a knoll. That might be the last one we see for a while, I added. I can't wait to come back, said Shuna. From the tone of her voice, I knew we shared the same yearning. I looked in the side mirror, saw Ross's ears, forelock, one calm eye, and in that moment felt radiant and full of love. Love for Ross, for Shuna, for Chief. Love for these islands, their people and wildlife and landscapes. Love for all and everyone I was travelling home to. And there was something else. This journey had helped me find a way to let go of the guilt and pain which had been silting inside me for so many years. In its place, acceptance for mum, for myself, for the two of us, had flowed in a little each day. I opened the window and reached both hands out, letting the cold air burn through my fingers, light rising, rising on that clear June morning. Oh, Leonie, what a wonderful completion to the journey and to the book. Thanks so much for being with us here on Talk of the Towns this morning, this afternoon. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm just going to conclude by reminding folks we've come to the end of the hour. Be sure and join us from four to five on the second Wednesday of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. And for this program, we're going to post some of the uh, albums of Leone's journey um, that she describes in Marum. Please tune in to our companion program, Coastal Conversations with Natalie Springle from University of Maine Sea Grant from 4 to 5 on the fourth Friday of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our special guests this afternoon, Leonie Charlton. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Andy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for Ralph Nader Radio from 5 to 6 and Jazz Straight Ahead with Larry Stahlberg from 6 to 8. This is Ron Beard, your producer and host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good afternoon.